In 2003, my graduating class at Newark High School made a list of predictions about a number of those of our classmates and what they might grow up to become and do with their lives. Uh, maybe you did this similarly in, in your graduating class if you've graduated. We called them senior superlatives and they were printed in uh, the yearbook and it was predicted of one of my friends that he was most likely to become a US president. Not a chance for that kid. Uh, another one of my friends was deemed most likely to run a business. I was deemed most likely to become a rock star. Oh boy. You are, <laughs> thank you Don, thank you. It was fun trying to predict each other's future based upon our talents and our interests at the time and a few of our predictions ended up coming to fruition. But our predictions weren't divinely revealed prophecies, right? They were just fun guesses based upon present evidence. Now the same cannot be said of the Old Testament prophecies that foretold in alarming detail the advent, the arrival of Christ. And they foretold this hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Throughout the 39 books of the Old Testament are hundreds of prophecies about and allusions to the coming Messiah, and among them are 61 major prophecies that are so specific they should make us marvel at the exactitude of God's word, and they should make us cry out in worship of Christ. In Micah 5.2, around 700 BC, it was prophesied that the Messiah would be born in the insignificant town of Bethlehem. In Isaiah 9.1, around 700 BC, it was prophesied that he would minister in the region of Galilee. In Zechariah 9.9, around 500 BC, it was prophesied that he would ride on a donkey's colt into Jerusalem. And in Zechariah 11, it was prophesied that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and that the betrayer would try to return the money. There are many more and our heads would just spin if we were to read every single one. That's not what we're do, we'll do this morning. But here's something to, to th maybe you've heard this. Years ago, a man named Peter Stoner, who was the chairman of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena College, he labored with 600 of his students to determine the mathematical probability of someone fulfilling just eight of the 61 major messianic prophecies. Maybe you've heard their conclusions. Their conclusions are staggering. The mathematical odds that one man would fulfill just eight of the 61 major messianic prophecies is one in 100 quadrillion. Stoner put these odds into perspective in his book entitled Science Speaks, and he wrote this. If we were to take 100 million silver dollars and spread them out, it would be enough to cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Now suppose we were to do that, he continued, and suppose we were to mark one of those silver dollars at random, and then suppose we were to send a man into Texas blindfolded 
so that he could guess which of those silver dollars was the marked one. What are the mathematical odds that he would pick the right one? One in 100 quadrillion. So according to mathematician Peter Stoner and his 600 students, the odds that Jesus would fulfill even eight of the 61 major prophecies, he fulfilled them thoroughly, and there are even more than that, but the odds that he would fulfill only eight would be the same as a blindfolded man guessing the marked uh, silver dollar, guessing the location of and the exact silver dollar in the state of Texas two feet deep. <laughs> so over the next four weeks of the Advent season, as Christians around the world celebrate the arrival of Christ, we hope to consider four of the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled at his arrival in the books of 2 Samuel, Isaiah, Micah and Zechariah, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, prophets not only foretold that he would come, they foretold what will be our sermon titles, Lord willing, for the next four weeks. He will be king. He will be God. He will be born. He will be low. This morning in 2 Samuel 7, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14, although I'm going to read a little bit more than that. We will consider the messianic prophecy that he, Jesus, that Christ, he will be king. And our hope this morning and our hope throughout this short series is that each of us would grow in our confidence that the Bible is God's word and it is altogether trustworthy. It is exact that each of us would be strengthened in our assurance that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that each of us would deepen in our understanding, in our Christological understanding of who Christ is and what he came to do. So right before, I'm going to read our passage here any moment, any moment, just keep holding your breath. Before I read Samuel, who chronicled the events and words of this book, was the Israelite judge who anointed Saul and David as Israel's first two kings. And the passage we're about to read are the words of God being spoken to King David through the prophet Nathan as recorded by Samuel. Does that make sense? <laughs> I, it's, a, it's a miracle if it did make sense. The words we're about to read Words of God spoken to King David through the prophet Nathan, recorded by the judge, Samuel. So let me pray. Join me. Father, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and minds to marvel at your words. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read 2 Samuel 7, starting at verse 8 and going through verse 17. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, 
so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. So what did we just read? (laughs) Of whom is God speaking here through the prophet Nathan? Let's take a few moments to examine and to consider this passage, okay? So let me delay giving you my outline. I'm gonna save an outline till the very end for our application of this passage, but let me just talk at you about this passage and let's examine this passage together. Verse 12 here describes the coming of a new king, a descendant of David and one whose kingdom is established by God. Verse 13 tells us that this new king would build a house for God's name and that his throne and his kingdom would last forever. Verse 14 tells us that God's relationship with this new king will be that of a father and a son. Verse 14 also tells us that God will discipline this new king when he sins. Of whom is God speaking here? A new king descended from David who builds God's house, who reigns as king forever, but who would bear consequences for sinning. There are a number of Old Testament prophecies such as this one that are double prophecies. Prophecies that are fulfilled in two ways. Now follow me on this. Shortly after the prophet Nathan delivered these words to David, these words, this prophecy would be partially fulfilled by the arrival of David's son, Solomon. If you're familiar with the biblical story, Solomon would become the new king after his father David. He would build a house for God, the temple, and he would bear consequences for sinning. If we were to keep reading through the next book, 1 Kings, we'd see Solomon turn his heart away from God in order to worship the false gods of his concubines. And then, in consequence for his sin, the people of Israel split. They divide into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah, and there is disarray amongst the people of God. So 
do we see the ways in which this prophecy, 2 Samuel 7, is partly fulfilled in Solomon. Now see with me how this prophecy is completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ a thousand years later. Listen to what is recorded in Luke 1, 26 through 33. Just listen. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the line of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Do we see how this prophecy, 2 Samuel 7, is brought to a fuller completion in Jesus Christ? The new king descended from David, the son of the Most High, who build God, builds God's house, who reigns as king forever. And we've been blessed with the rest of the redemptive story. If we were to read through the New Testament books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we would see Christ bearing the consequences for sin, not his own, but the whole world's. We would see the discipline of God unleashed against sin being bore by Jesus, being beaten by the rods of men and whipped with stripes just as we are being told here in 2 Samuel 7, 14, a thousand years before it took place. What Solomon fulfills partially, Christ fulfills completely now how on earth did the prophet Nathan foretell so accurately what Christ would so perfectly fulfill well, the Apostle Peter doesn't leave this up to guesswork. He tells us in 2 Peter 1.21 that all the prophets, including Nathan, they didn't prophesy according to their own premonition. They didn't make educated guesses about their classmates and, and list them out in senior superlatives or coincidentally predict what would happen much later. No, 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 no. Peter dispels that notion. He says, no, the prophets were carried, they were directed, they were inspired by God himself. When Nathan spoke these words to David, I don't think either of them could even fathom how fully and thoroughly and perfectly and redemptively God would fulfill this promise. Now, it's gonna be a short message today, but here are three 
Overarching applications for us from 2 Samuel 7. Three applications we might just ask the Lord to make rich in our souls for this season and every season. Number one, God's word is always trustworthy. Didn't we see that in Genesis 1 through 11 time and time again? But here we are saying it again. God's word is always trustworthy. Number two, God's work is always on time. And number three, God's son is always on his throne. Number one, point of application. God's word is always trustworthy. The fulfillment of this prophecy in 2 Samuel 7, like the fulfillment of scores of other messianic prophecies, the fulfillment of it should bolster our unshakable confidence in this season and every season that God says what he means, he means what he says, and like I've already stated, we saw this time and time again in Genesis 1 through 11, God spoke and it happened. He said it would happen, and it happened, just as he said it would. God's words are true. God's words are trustworthy. His Bible, trustworthy. Who he is and who he says he is, how he acts, he says, how he says he acts, he will act. And each and every one of his blessed promises finds their yes and amen in the person and work of Christ, the King of Kings, descended from David, born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago, Christ the Lord, who has built and is building God's house from every tribe, tongue, and nation to the glory of God. So this season, and every season that the Lord grants to us, with your spouse, if you're married, with your kids if you have them, in the quiet of your mornings and your evenings or in the break room or in the school cafeteria, when you open your Bible, saints, when you open your Bible, lean into it, lean onto it with this confidence. Every crossed T and every dotted I has and is and will come to fruition at the fullness of time. When you open your Bible, church with me, let's lean into and lean onto what God would have us to believe, what God would have us to trust, what God would have us to obey, and what God would have us to anticipate. There's something about the Advent season when we celebrate the arrival, the coming of Christ. Should it not have this eschatological echo? And what I mean by that is he's going to come again. There will be another Advent. And with anticipation, we can absorb his words and his promises and look forward to that day. For we who are in Christ, we're at peace with God. There will be no condemnation and judgment for us. Hallelujah. Number two, God's work is always on time. Think, think about this. When, when considering our prophecy, 2 Samuel 7, think about the gap of time 
between the foretelling and the fulfillment of this prophecy, a thousand years, a thousand years. Now, that's a long period of time according to our finite vantage points. But according to God's infinitely wise and majestically sovereign vantage point, the advent of King Jesus happened precisely on time. Not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. The Apostle Paul actually explains this in Romans 5 and Galatians 4, that King Jesus, he came to minister, to die, to rise, and to ascend to his throne at the perfect time in history. It was the perfect time. Now, a whole series could be spent, devoted to, the situation that was going on in first century Palestine, the, the timeliness of Jesus' arrival. A whole series could be examining the Roman occupation and Caesar Augustus. They were establishing highways and byways all throughout the world and King Jesus and his disciples operating within Roman occupation, they could easily travel to and fro and to and fro delivering the good news that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And even too, if we were to dive back, you know, in time into the first century, the readiness of the people of Israel to receive a new king was at its peak. They were sick and tired of Roman oppression. They believed that God would send a king. They they overlooked the, the, the manner in which the king would come, the humble riding on a donkey's colt, the lowly, we'll get to that. But the timing of Jesus' arrival was perfect. God's work is always on time. I'm gonna try and put some, some flesh on this for, for a second. For the two years that I served as a resident of, of, of church planting um, in, in Columbus. My wife and four of my kids were with us and money was really, really, really tight. It was so tight that I, I remember it as if it were yesterday. Uh, Linz and I sat on the couch and we just, we had nothing else to do, but Lord, we, we need some grocery money. <laughs> we just need some grocery money. I kid you not, before we said amen, we heard a clink in our mailbox for $250 to the grocery store. I mean, look, now, we, we can take that and run with that illustration anywhere we want to, but, but here's what I'm, look, God's work always happens precisely when he means to do it. He knows our need. He knows our frailty. He knows our frame. He knows our heart's cry. He knows our longings. He knows and he is working, and he is working such that it will be perfectly on time. Not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. So this season and every season, sit down with your spouse if you're married, if you're kids, if you have them, sit down in the quiet of your morning and evening and make, we have need. We have them, we have needs. Let's, let's, Make our requests known to God as Paul admonishes. Pray for your wayward child. Pray for your unbelieving neighbor. Pray for the need to be met, the genuine need to be met in your life. Pray for your coworker and know this. God is working. 
It may take, in this case, a thousand years. Hopefully, in many of our cases, it won't take that long. But he is working, and he is working precisely as he means to, always on time. Always, always on time. Number three, God's son is always on his throne. So, Joe Biden might be our president, and Kamala Harris, our vice president. But Jesus Christ is our high king. Yesterday, today, and forevermore. And every earthly power, ruler, authority, dominion, principality, he has subjected and he will subject to his will. If they do not surrender now, they will. King Herod, at the time of Jesus' arrival, the time of his advent, King Herod knew this. King Herod was the self-exalting, self-proclaimed king of the Jews at the time of Jesus' birth. So, when King Herod received word from the Magi, the wise men, that a new king had been born, what did he do? Well, firstly, he went right to God's word to ascertain where the new king was to be born. P.S., isn't it telling when even wicked people go to God's word for direction? (laughs) And then after he ascertained the place of the birth of the new king, he sanctioned a widespread execution of every boy in the region age two and below. God is always on his throne is my point. One thing we can and should do this season and every season with our spouses, with our kids, with our coworkers, with our neighbors if we have the opportunity, with our classmates when we, and if we have the opportunity. I'll just bring up the kind of the lesser magistrates here. Pray for President Biden. Pray for Vice President Harris. Pray for our elected officials. Pray that their eyes and minds and hearts would be opened and surrendered to the one true king who is reigning now and who will come. And we're told in scripture there's going to be a scramble. All the lesser kings and rulers and authorities are going to finally realize, This isn't my world. The world doesn't revolve around me. So pray. King Jesus is on his throne. The secondary question, and a little bit more closer to home for us, is Jesus King over our celebrations, over the songs, over the decorations, over the things we eat, the jokes we laugh at, the movies we watch, the things we are saturated in and with in this season My wife just reminded me that it was Pastor John Piper who said, if someone were to come into your house without hearing a word from you, who's the king of this celebration? Look around. Who is king here? God's son is always on the throne. And he will always be. And this prophecy from 2 Samuel 7 What a booster of confidence. 
And how complex, how infinite in wisdom is God's mind that he would foretell through a prophet something that would come partially to fruition through someone and then fully to fruition through the Christ. 1 Timothy 3.16, he, Jesus, appeared in the flesh. He did. He was vindicated by the Spirit he was seen by the angels. He was proclaimed among, among the nations. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory. And he will soon return with all of that glory in tow. He will be king. He is king. And he will be king. Pray with me, and then we'll sing together. Father, by your grace by your grace poured out to us through Christ, we desire to bow before the throne of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Lord, this season in which we celebrate his advent, his arrival, I pray, Lord, that you might, by your Holy Spirit, convict us where we are all too quick to get super-duper casual and to neglect the king who is on the throne at this moment. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us when we stack up around and on his throne things that are just really, really, really important to us, but they are not our king. Jesus, would you establish yourself in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, our families. Lord, would you reestablish yourself king above all kings and Lord would you be lauded and praised and honored and celebrated as we remember that you came to earth incarnate in the flesh pray Lord that you would give us prayerfulness for all of the lesser kings that are ruling our country and our world right now oh Lord make us mindful and prayerful because there can, and is, there can be and is only one king on the true throne. And we acknowledge that and we ask God that you would open their eyes, their minds, their hearts to see, to repent, to trust, to obey, to surrender and submit to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray this with great joy and confidence that you will answer because you are a God of your word. That is clear. In Jesus' name, amen.